Hello, welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm El Ziegler, and we're going to be picking up today in Perak Yudalid, Pasuk Tetvav. This is the third installment in Parshat Bishalach. We'll be picking up from where Rabbi Liebtag left off yesterday in Perak Yudalid, Pasuk Yud Gimel. We're now beginning the section of Kriyat Yamsuf. Uh, we already had Am Yisrael uh, running towards the Yam. They're running away from the Egyptians. And now we're actually having the story of the miracle. The miracle of Kriyat Yamsuf begins in Perakudalid Pasuk Tetvav, and it concludes in Perakudalid Pasuk Lamed Aleph. Following that, we're going to have the Shira, we're going to have the song in which we praise God for having brought about this miracle. Um, of course, the section ends, the section that, that precedes Kriyat Yamsuf ended with the very lofty words. God will fight on your behalf and you will be silent. So there's this sense of uh, anticipation that leads us into this section. These next two sections are pretty clearly divided into two. Our Masara also divides them into two. Between Pasuk Kafei and Pasuk Kavav, there is what we call a Parsha Pitucha, which is an open-ended line that we leave that suggests that there is a pause there. Um, this this uh, division, I think, reflects sev- uh, several ideas in uh, Pasuk Tetvav through Kafei. We have the story of Bikiat Hayam. It opens with God speaking to Moshe. The goal of this section seems to be directed toward the Mitzrim, toward the conclusion of Mitzrayim, that Hashem nilcham lahem b'Mitzrayim, God is fighting on Yisrael's behalf against Egypt. The word yam appears here seven times. That, of course, makes it the milam amcha, the key word of that section. And the second section that begins in Pasuk Kavav and concludes in Pasuk Lamed Aleph is actually Skiratayam. It is the closing of the sea. If the first section is the opening of the sea, the section, the second section is the closing of the sea. Here, once again, the section ends with God speaking to Moshe. And yet this time it concludes with uh, Am Yisrael's recognition of God, Yediyat Hashem, Vayar Yisrael et hayad hagidola asher asa Adonai b'Mitzrayim, Vayiru ha'am et Adonai, Vayaminu ba'Adonai v'Moshe Avdo, a very famous pasuk that we'll talk about shortly, but which clearly um, points to Am Yisrael's recognition of God as a result of this entire story of Kriyat Yamsuf. This second section also contains the word Yam, seven times again, meaning that in both of these sections, we're actually focused on the yam, on the sea. That itself, I think, is worthy of note. Uh, We have here this notion that the might of the sea, that the sea is uh, a mighty, frightening, awesome power, and that God actually exercises control over this power as well. Now, within the context of what we've been saying so far about Egypt, Uh, especially considering the fact that Egypt has this pantheon of gods, each of which seems to control a different power in the world. Uh, One of the ideas that we have throughout the Makot section, throughout the plague section, is that God controls everything. He controls the skies and he controls the seas and he controls the animals and he controls the, uh, the, the, the all the different powers of nature. And so we have that here as well. And yet control over the sea is particularly significant within the context of uh, Canaanite uh, pagan worship. We know that uh, one of the 
gods in the Canaanite pantheon is called Yam, right? We find this especially in some of the uh, documents that we found in Ugarit, right, which really reflects a lot of uh, what's going on in, uh, in Canaanite idolatry. And the name of the god of the sea is Yam. And so I think that that's particularly significant because throughout this story, we have this notion that God is not just battling the Egyptians, but he's also battling the Egyptian gods. Against the gods of Egypt, I will render judgment. Now, here I'm not suggesting that Yam is a god of Egypt. I just mentioned that Yam is actually a god, a well-known god in the Canaanite pantheon. But I think that that idea that God is battling these idolatrous practices, these idolatrous notions, come into play here as well, where the idea of, of, of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the whole story of the plagues and God's might in Egypt is also designed in order to prepare us for this idea of monotheism, that God controls everything. The fact that God controls the sea, this is going to be a very important idea that we're going to find in several other places in Tanakh. Uh, we're going to see that Tanakh uh, draws quite uh, quite extensively from this story that the Tanakh is constantly referencing, the story of Kriyat Yamsuf, and oftentimes it focuses on God's power over the sea, right? So we might have Hayam Ra'a Vayanos, right? The, the Yam sees and, and runs away, it flees from God, from God's might. Or in a different Pasuk in Tehillim, Vayiga'ar Biyamsuf, Vayecherav, right? And God um, shouts and he rebukes the Yamsuf and it dries up, right? So we have this focus on God's power. Okay, let's begin with Perakidalid Pasuk Tevav with this literary introduction. Let's look at what God says here to Moshe. Leomer Adonai El Moshe Ma Titzak Elai. Daber El Israel Visau. And God says to Moshe, Why are you crying out to me? Speak to B'nai Israel and they should travel, they should begin to move. Um, this opening is is really quite difficult. On the one hand, I think that we have to um, we have to, to uh, feel that there's some sort of rebuke that is going on here. It sounds like a rebuke. Why are you crying out to me? Says God to Moshe. That seems to be one question. Why is uh, God seem to be rebuking Moshe here? And the other question is really a practical question. When did Moshe cry out? Right. This is not something that we have. In the, in the story itself. Um, well, there are several options here. Let's begin with the second question. The Ibn Ezra suggests that um, this is based on the previous Pasuk, Pasuk Yud, where we're told that Ibn Ezra cried out to God. And here the Ibn Ezra says, uh, Moshe is identified with Ibn Israel. He cried out along with them. And when God says to Moshe, he's not just talking about Moshe's personal cry, but he's talking about all of their cries. Why are they crying here? They should be moving. This is not a time for crying. This is a time for action. Another possibility is, as the Ramban says, that Moshe did in fact uh, cry out. We just didn't, we didn't hear of it until now. That seems to be somewhat typical. It is somewhat characteristic of the Tanakh not to tell us all the information and sometimes just to tell us the information in this sort of uh, subtle, sort of backhanded way. We only find out that Moshe cries out when God tells him not to cry out. 
Um, as to the reason why Moshe seems to be rebuked here, well, there are several different uh, possible approaches. I think, uh, you know, I just mentioned before that, uh, you know, it sounds a little bit like this is not the time for action. It's the time, uh, I'm sorry, this is not the time for, for crying out. It's not the time for words. It's the time for action. Um, it's certainly, it, it's possible that it's not a rebuke. It's just an information. Why are you crying out to me? This is not the time to cry out. Don't worry. We have no need now for tefillah. Uh, just speak to Am Yisrael, and we can uh, get this get this uh, story moving forward. So it's possible that even though perhaps my first inclination is that it sounds like a rebuke, it's possible that it's not really quite a rebuke. And now God commands Moshe what he should do. in pasuk et matacha et yadacha al hayam and you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and split it. And Am Yisrael will come into the sea on the dry land. Um, so here, once again, we have this staff of Moshe, the hand of Moshe. We've seen this several times that Moshe is being told to stretch out his hand, to lift up his staff. Uh, many of the Mepharshim here discuss the question as to whether or not these are two separate instructions whether you're supposed to first raise the staff and then stretch out your hand. Are these two separate things or are these perhaps uh, um, uh, two interchangeable things? Perhaps the mate and the yad actually symbolize two different things. The mate symbolizes perhaps the punishments of Egypt and the yad represents God's power. There are several different ways to go with this, but I do think that um, there's a sense throughout the makot story that as Moshe progresses, he uses less and less the mate, and more and more his own yad, right? That he almost uh, becomes more and more fused with uh, God, with his own power that derives from God. Certainly both the staff, which is called the mate elokim, the staff of God, and the hand of Moshe, which is somehow considered to be the long arm of God, some sort of representation of the yad chazakah, of the strong hand of God, both of these things are Moshe's way of representing God's leadership, God's power, and God's authority. What we have in both the plagues of hail and locusts is that Moshe is told, stretch out your hand, but in the actual execution of the plague, we're told, he stretches out his stick. In Makat Choshech, Moshe is told to stretch out his hand, and he does so. And finally, here, Moshe is going to be told, stretch out your staff, stretch out your hand. But we're going to see that later on in the story, um, for example, in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, and then again in Pasuk Kavav and Kav Zayin, Moshe is actually only going to use his hand. So it seems to be that there's uh, perhaps this progression through the plague story as Moshe more and more is identified um, with the uh, with God's power, with using his hand and not necessarily even using something external. And there are different refreshing that go in different directions, but I'm going to uh, I'm going to leave it at that for now. I'll just mention one more point, and that is that even though Moshe does stretch out his hand in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, we're going to see that only God actually splits the sea. And, and that's true. We're going to see that later in Tanakh as well in every single biblical passage in which we have the story of 
Bikiat Yamsuf or Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, it is God very explicitly who splits the sea and never Moshe. So this uh, this miracle is going to be attributed directly to God. So if Moshe is supposed to uh, lift up his staff and that ultimately is going to be a sign for B'nai Yisrael and it's meant to give the confidence to B'nai Yisrael to go into the sea on the dry land, we now have in Psukim Yudzain and Yudchet, God's role in this story. If Pasuk Tezayin started out with the word Ve'ata, directed towards Moshe, Pasuk Yudzayin starts out with the word Va'ani, and this is of course God speaking, Ve'ani hinani mechazek et leib Mitzrayim, v'yavou achareihem. I will strengthen or harden the heart of Egypt, and they will come in after them. And I will, the word ikavda we'll speak about in a second for a moment, I'm just going to translate it like the majority of the parshanim, of the exegetes, and that is, and I will be glorified through paro and through his soldiers and through his chariots and his horsemen. And Mitzrayim will know that I am God when I obtain glory through Paro, through his chariots and through his horsemen. And so here we have the goal or sort of what seems to be more God's role in the story. And that is to get the Egyptians to follow Am Yisrael into the sea so that the Egyptians will know of God, so that God will obtain glory through them. I will just make a, a one comment on the word v'ikavda, v'hikavdi, which appears twice here in these uh, psukim. It certainly seems clear that this is a key word throughout the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim. It appears over and over and over, the word kaved. It's going to appear also later on in this section, in Pasuk Kafei, when we see that the chariots, are not moving, they are uh, kvedim, right? They're bikvedut, they, um, they move only with great heaviness. But we've already seen this word both to describe Paro's stubbornness and intransigence, um, and also we have uh, this description is used also for the heavy work that Am Yisrael has to do as a result of Paro's decrees, tichbad ha'avodah, right? They, they should uh, be heavy with work. Uh, this is also part of the punishment of the Egyptians. We have heavy plagues. We have a rove that is kaved, that is very heavy. The dever is described as kaved, the pestilence. The hail is described as kaved. The locusts are described as kaved. So we have all of these sort of what we call midah, k'neged midah, uh, measure for measures, that appears with this word kaved. Um, Paro is stubbornly kaved. He makes his heart heavy, um, and they make the, the work on the people very heavy, and therefore they get heavy plagues. But also, Am Yisrael are described as heavy, because when they leave Egypt, they're heavy with mikne, they are heavy with cattle. And there's one other use of the word heavy, and that is uh, twice with regard to Moshe. We're going to see that Moshe uh, sometimes has what seems to be some sort of uh, impediment for him to properly fulfill his job. His job, of course, is to represent God's hands and eventually to represent God's mouth. Moshe at the very beginning says, Kvad kvad lashon anochi, I'm heavy of mouth. Later on in the story of Amalek, we're going to see that Moshe's hands are heavy. So this heaviness can be an obstacle. And of course, ultimately, it can also be an attempt 
to try to bring the people to God's glory. Right? So this word really functions over and over as a wordplay. It's definitely worthy of note. At this point, the heaviness of Paro, most of the Farshim say here is, uh, it's not it's not that Paro is heavy, it's that God is going to become glorified through this act, although some of the Mepharshim read the word v'ikavda um, b'faro, uh, uh, I will punish Paro, I will make him heavy. But again, I think that maybe this kind of um, ambiguous uh, reading of the word kaved uh, here in Pasuk Yudzayin is maybe a deliberate ambiguity. Paro's heaviness is God's glory. Uh, with regard to Moshe, I'm not going to discuss it right now. I'm just going to leave it out there as food for thought. Why several times Moshe's uh, human impediment is also described as heaviness. I'm going to leave that aside for the moment. Let's turn our attention now to Pasuk Yud Tet. Pasukim Yud Tet uh, through Kaf are, are very sublime Pasukim. They describe divine activity. They're not easily understood. Perhaps this is the reason that we have really an incredible Ibn Ezra here on Pasuk Yutet, where he says that these next three psukim, namely Yutet, Kaf, and Kaf Aleph, um, are, each have 72 letters. And he says that therefore they contain within them the secret of the Shem HaMiforash, the secret name of God, the 72-letter name of God. I think, again, he's sort of drawing our attention to the, the sublime nature of these next psukim. Rashi has also an incredible reading of these psukim, which I'm not going to get into right now, but I'll just direct your attention to a Rashi in the Gemara in Sukkah and Daf Memhei Amud Aleph, where he talks about the first and last letters of each of each of these psukim and the middle letters, and he has all sorts of um, kind of uh, um, mystical explanations of these psukim and bringing it up simply because I think that there are certain um, uh, difficulties in these psukim, which may be accounted for by understanding that these psukim are psukim that describe uh, divine activity, and therefore perhaps they're deliberately mysterious psukim. Okay, let's read these psukim and see what they say. So the Malach HaElohim, this angel of God that was going before the camp of Israel, now goes to the back. And the Amud HaAnan, the pillar of clouds that was also traveling in front of them, goes and stands in back of them. Vayavo ben Machane Mitzrayim uven Machane Israel, And it comes between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Vayhi HaAnan VeHachoshech Vayair Et Halayla this is pretty much the most difficult part here. And it was the cloud and the darkness. It sounds like, and it lit up the night. And it and he did not come close one to the other all that night. In other words, there seems to have been no, uh, no interaction between Egypt and Israel the entire night, presumably because of this pillar of cloud and darkness, along with the angel of God, that seems to buffer between the camp of, of Egypt and the camp of Israel. This pasuk certainly recalls what we saw previously, what you saw with Rabbi Liptag at the end of Parakud Gimel in Pasuk of Aleph, where we were told that God walks before them or goes before them in the day in this 
a pillar of cloud in order to lead them on the path and the and the at night they have the pillar of fire in order to light for them the way it seems to hark back to that description there is some discussion about whether or not the malach elokim that is mentioned here is identical with the amud ha'anan and is simply a description of the way in which god manifests himself in order to lead them most of the Mefarshim seem to think that these are two separate entities. We have the Malach Hashem and we have the Amud Ha'anan. We have uh, both the angel of God and this pillar of cloud. Uh, all, the, all the different Parshanim explain this somewhat differently. I'm just going to mention the explanation of the Ramban, which the Barbanel thinks as well. And that is that if the Amud Ha'anan is mentioned explicitly, the Malach Ha'elokim is actually an implicit reference to the pillar of fire. Right, so that really, uh, the Ramban suggests that both of these pillars move to the back of the camp in order to separate between Egypt and Israel. But I think really the real question here is, what are these uh, divine beings doing? It, what, for what reason and to what end are they separating? How do we understand Vayair et Halayla? Well, perhaps it's for this reason that the Ramban uh, suggests that, in fact, there is that pillar of fire, Vayair et Halayla, being um, they lit up the night. Um, one possibility is that these divine beings are there in order to separate between the camps so as to protect Israel, so that the Egyptians won't attack Israel uh, during the night. The other possibility, which uh, also appears in the different Mefarshim, is that the idea here is to, plun to plunge the Egyptians into darkness and perhaps at the same time to light up the night for Israel, right? So that these two parts of Pasukaf, Vayihe Anan, Vayachoshech, Vayair et Halayla, are not describing the same thing. Vayihe Anan, Vayachoshech, and the cloud and the darkness, that describes what's happening in Machane Mitzrayim. And Vayair et Halayla, that describes what's happening in Machane Yisrael. Now this accounts for um, the idea also that this these pillars are there in order to um, to lead the people. Usually they're leading Machane Israel, the camp of Israel. But in this case, they're also designed to lead the Egyptians deep into the sea. The idea here is part of the confusion that we're going to see later within the Egyptian camp, which has been plunged into darkness. But at the same time, I think that there's a, perhaps a, a more important idea that we've seen before, which is that the last three plagues were, that were brought upon the Egyptians were all plagues of darkness, the plague of locusts, the plague of, of darkness, the plague of makat becharot. They all involve darkness, and the idea is also symbolic. This story is about leaving the Egyptians behind, plunged into this uh, confusion, this darkness, and of course, Am Yisrael is being brought into light. This is uh, uh, certainly meant to be symbolic. We have some very beautiful psukim, particularly in Sefer Yeshayahu, which suggests that this is actually the goal of the story. In, in Yeshayahu, Perak Tet, Pasuk Aleph, for example, Yeshayahu describes Am Yisrael as Ha'am ha'holchim b'choshech ra'u or gadol, right? The, the nation that was going in darkness sees this great light. And of course, uh, light and darkness is symbolic of understanding and lack of understanding, of morality and lack of morality, and perhaps we have that here as well. To support this point, note also that three sentences in a row end with the word Laila. Right? So we have a Ya'er et halayla. Vilokrav zeh kol halayla. 
Beruach Kadim Azak Kol Halayla, right? So we have this uh, emphasis on the Laila, on the night. It recalls, of course, the night of Makat Bechorot and this idea that Egypt's day has turned into night. Okay, let's look in Pasuk Kaf Aleph, which is the execution of this moment, of this event. Vayet Moshe et Yado al Hayam, and Moshe stretches out his hand over the sea. Vayolech Adonai et Hayam beruach kadim aza kol hamayla, vayasem et Hayam lecharava, vayibaku hamayim. So Moshe stretches out his hand on the sea, and God uh, leads the sea in this strong easterly wind all that night. And he makes the sea dry land, and the water splits. So we'll note here, once again, the similarity to the locust plague, which in many ways we already noted seems to be a forerunner for the drowning of the Egyptians. This is certainly a negative depiction of the Egyptians. But here again, we have the focus on that easterly wind. Uh, perhaps here it's important to note that one of the central uh, components of this miracle beyond the splitting of the sea is the actual walking upon dry land, which, ha which, ha which happens as a result of the split. This point is mentioned over and over in the story that they're going to be walking on dry land. And it's also going to be alluded to frequently in later biblical passages, which describe, which draw on this story in order to describe um, God's judgment upon uh, his enemies, that God can turn water into dry land, but it's also going to be used in passages which describe God giving Amisrael redemption by the same token that he can um, that he can dry up people's uh, the water of nations so that they no longer have, for example, a Nile that they depend upon for their economic viability. At the same time, God can do again what he's done here, which is to dry up the ground so that Am Yisrael can walk through in order to be redeemed. So it has symbolism also for Am Yisrael's redemption, but also for the drying up of um, of, of the economic prosperity of Egypt. Um, let's go on. Pasuk Kaftet, Vayavov Neisra B'tochayam Vayavasha, Vehamayim Lahem Choma, Miminam Umismolam. And B'nai Israel came into the sea on dry land, and the water for them was a wall to the right of them and to the left of them. This is a very lyrical description of I'm Mr. Al walking through the sea. We actually read it when we read it in in um, in the shul. Uh, we read it as a song. It has a little bit of a different tune. The year Mitzrayim chases after them and they come after them. All of the horses of Paro, his chariots and his horsemen, into the sea. There's a great emphasis here on Paro's military capability. We know from ancient Egypt that this is certainly the case, that the Paro was very invested in his military. And in fact, it, it seems to be that the Egyptians actually invented using a horse-drawn chariot in war. And so we have here perhaps the uh, attempt to demonstrate that all of Paro's um, alleged power is now going to dissipate. And it was at the watch of the morning. It was at the morning watch and God looked at the camp of Mitzrayim in his pillar of fire and cloud 
and he threw confusion into the camp of Egypt. So uh, perhaps this is one of the reasons that before some of the Farshim had seen that um, pillar of fire as being um, uh, represented by the Malach Elohim, because here we have the pillar of fire, we have the cloud, the execution of um, this punishment seems to have very Stom and Amora-like connotations. There's fire, there's cloud. Fire and cloud can be used both for protection and for destruction. Uh, it's, they also seem to symbolize God. We have this sort of, uh, um, Rashi describes almost this apocalyptic scene of uh, divine destruction, whereas the Ramban here describes more of a storm, the Amud Esh and the Anan, he says is, uh, you know, Barad is some sort of hail that um, that seems to have fire in it. Let's look at the next pasuk. Vayasar et ofan markivotav inageu bichvedut. Vayomer mitzrayim anusa mipnei Yisrael ki Adonai nilcham lahem b'mitzrayim. And so they tried to turn the wheel of their chariots, and they rode them with heaviness. And Mitzrayim said, I will run away from Israel, for God is fighting on their behalf against Egypt. Right? So we have this sense that the Egyptians can't move their chariots. Their chariots seem to have sunk deeply into the mud. Uh, the water seems to be trickling under the Egyptians, um, under the Egyptians' chariots. They're not yet drowning, but they can't seem to move. They're stuck. And now, Pasuk Kavav, we have the second section here. And of course, we noted that the first section ends with Egypt's declaration of God's greatness, of recognizing that God is fighting on Am Yisrael's behalf. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe, nitei et yadcha al hayam, v'yashuvu hamayim al Mitzrayim, al richbo al parashav. And God said to Moshe, stretch out your hand over the sea, and return the water upon Egypt, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Moshe stretches out his hand over the sea, and the sea returns at the turn of the morning to its strength, and Mitzrayim are running to greet it. Mitzrayim are running to greet what? It seems that Mitzrayim are running to greet the water, or they're running away, and yet they run right into the water. That seems to be what uh, the way that Rashi explains it. And God hurls Egypt around in the sea. Uh, this is the only verb which actually describes God destroying Egypt, the word vayinaer, um, although before we had vayahom, which is that he threw them into confusion, um, but here we have the actual destruction. And the water returned and it covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the soldiers of Paro who came after them into the sea. There was not even one left of them. This again reminds us of the locusts along with the easterly wind. We also had this with the arov, this kind of phrase, the famous Midrash, which uh, Steven Spielberg picks up on in Prince of Egypt. And in fact, means only one of them was alive, not none of them were alive, but only one was alive. And that's why at the end of that movie, we have 
Paro sitting on the rock alive because there is this midrashic idea that in fact uh, one of them is left. Now in fact uh, Paro, the person, is not going to be um, mentioned again, so we don't actually know if this midrashic idea is sustainable, but in another passage in which we have this idea of uh, or this phrase of Loni Sha'ar Bahem Adechad, which is in the story that is built on the story, the story of Sisra, we have a very similar phrase where the Pasuk says Loni Sha'ar Adechad, right? It's talking about the camp of Sisra, Loni Sha'ar Adechad, not even one was left. And then right afterwards, we're told that Sisra ran away. So there was one left, which seems to be uh, able to substantiate this reading that Loni Sha'ar Bahem Adechad means. Only one was left, uh, and not not even one was left. Um, in in any case, as Paro and his uh, soldiers and his chariots and horsemen are being uh, destroyed, and Bnei Israel are walking on the dry land inside the sea. And the water is a wall to the right of them and to the left of them. Many of them, Farshim here, note that it seems as though at the same time that the Egyptians are being drowned, Israel, uh, Am Yisrael is still in the sea. And in fact, the water itself, and the Ebenezer says this very explicitly, distinguishes between Am Yisrael and the Egyptians. So at the same time that the water swirling around is drowning the Egyptians, Bnei Israel is still walking calmly through the water in this dry land. If you compare Pasuk Kaftet to Pasuk Kafbet, in Pasuk Kafbet, we had a very similar Pasuk where we had the wall of water around them, but Pasuk Kafbet tells us about Vayavo Bnei Israel Betil Chayam, Am Israel coming into the sea, whereas Pasuk Kaftet is telling us, U Bnei Israel Halchu Vayabasha Betil Chayam, they're walking in the sea on the dry land, and this seems to indicate that we're, we're describing later on in the journey. And so there are really two miracles here. One is when B'nai Israel first go in to the sea and find themselves on dry land, and the other is when God distinguishes between Am Yisrael and Egypt in the sea itself. And this, of course, recalls many of the plagues very explicitly distinguished between Egypt and Israel. Okay, let's go to our poetic ending here, which mentions Yisrael three times and Mitzrayim three times and ends with this great declaration of belief, of faith in God. Pasuk Lamed, Vayosha Adonai Bayom Hahu et Yisrael miyad Mitzrayim Vayar Yisrael et Mitzrayim meit al Sfat Hayam. And God saved on that day Israel from Egypt and Israel saw Egypt dead on the banks of the sea. And Israel saw the great hand that God did, that God brought to bear against Egypt, and the nation feared God, and they believed in God and in Moshe, his servant. Uh, so I'll make one last point. We're really getting to the end here of uh, my time, and that is that we have... Aside from this great, uh, really, I think, uh, awe-inspiring declaration of faith, of trust, of recognition that God has directly intervened in their salvation, we also have an interesting wordplay here between the word uh, yare, which means to fear, and the word ra'a, which means to see. Right? There's this sort of sense that um, seeing has led to fear of God, which is this uh, yirat Hashem, it's more 
awe of God and reverence. And this seems to relate to the end of uh, what I what was yesterday's shiur, which is uh, Yudalid uh, Pasuk Yud Gimel, where Moshe turned to the people and said to them, Al tirau, do not be afraid. Stand and see the salvations of God that He will do for you today. For just as you see Egypt today, you won't ever see them uh, again. And so here we have again this play between Yare and Ra'ah, between fear and seeing. Uh, there, when Moshe says to the nation, Don't be afraid, he's of course talking about fear from the Egyptians. He tells them, don't be afraid, stand and you will see God's salvation, for you will never see Egypt again in the same way. And of course, what happens in our story is, is that I shall see the Egyptians dead. And therefore, they see the great wonders of God. And they no longer fear Egypt. Instead, they have acquired fear of God. And that seems to be one of the ultimate goals of this story.